Hi all, Jacob Austin here, owner of QS.zone, and welcome to episode number two of the Subcontractors Blueprint, the show where subcontractors will learn how to ensure profitability, improve cash flow, and grow their business. Today is episode number two, and we're talking about contracts and the holy trinity of contracts. We're going to start by exploring what a contract is and how one can be formed and then we're going to look at some of the things that you need to watch out for and absolutely make sure you look at and make sure are correct when you receive your subcontract. So what is a contract? A contract in its basic form is a type of agreement and you see them and you get them all over the place. You as a person have probably formed thousands of them, if not millions. And we're talking things like your contract of employment, any kind of business contract, so partnership agreement, indemnity agreement, non-disclosure agreement, bills of sale for purchasing a house, some kind of licensing agreement, loans, promissory notes, When you go and buy your pint of milk, your packet of crisps, your pint of lager, whatever, you're creating a contract of sale. So I guess what I'm saying is these are things that we do every day and it shouldn't be something that scares us. So contracts typically evolve around some kind of exchange of goods or services, but it can also involve an agreement to do something, such as an agreement to go and meet one of your mates down the pub. There's been an offer, do you want to go for a pint? And there's been acceptance. Yeah, I'll come for a pint with you. Those two portions, offer and acceptance, constitute a contract in its basic form. Contracts can be verbal or in writing. But Typically what the offer and acceptance are around is what is termed consideration in contract law. And that's the agreement of an exchange of some sort of either money or something of value. And the other thing before you all get excited about suing your man for flaking out of the pub visit on Thursday night is there has to be some kind of legal intent to create an agreement. So with those four things, the offer and acceptance, the consideration or price, along with the intention to enter into an agreement, that forms your contract under UK law. So if we stopped and thought about that in terms of going to the shop and buying something, You're picking something up off the shelf, there's a price there, your baked beans are on sale for 99p, obviously supermarket brand, since the cost of living drove Heinz prices through the roof. You're accepting the price, you're taking it to the till, you're exchanging your money, your consideration, and your intent is to purchase your tin of beans And what you often see at the point of sale, 
Stood at the till is a little note to remind you that you're purchasing your goods in line with the Consumer Rights Act 2015. Your statutory rights are unaffected by this sale or offer or the two-for-one deal. And there you have it. One of the thousands, if not millions, of contracts that you've formed in your lifetime. And with that experience, you're almost an expert. So I'm telling you this because I don't want you to feel daunted by looking at a subcontract. It's just a document. It's an agreement. And it's there to put some formalities around what you're doing, how much you're going to get paid for it, how long you've got to deliver it, and to set some rules to govern what happens if there's a change or if there's a delay. And the intention is to protect both parties. So, some of the things that you'll see in your life in the construction industry. Contracts in construction may be framework agreements, partnering arrangements, joint ventures, main contracts, subcontracts, design appointments, labour-only orders, supply-only orders. Not to mention section agreements and my personal favourite from those robbing bastards down the local authority, the Section 106 agreement, where the local authority holds their hand out for any amount of money they can have a stab at justifying for pretty much anything they can think of from provision of footpaths, bus passes, police, schools, you name it. There's some kind of a charge for it. Anyway, that really is a story for another day. But typically, what you will be working under is a subcontract which is issued by a main contractor and it's in some way or form related back to a main contract. That main contract might be for a traditionally delivered job, so designed by the client but delivered by the contractor. It might be a remeasurement arrangement or design and build and a lump sum. And to some degree, the nature of the main contractor's appointment will trickle down into the way that you're appointed as a subcontractor. That's not to say that every subcontract on a design and build job has to be a design and build subcontract because patently that doesn't have to be the case. You may be providing something such as masonry where there's no requirement to design anything. And in that scenario, why would you be on a design and build subcontract and not a standard lump sum or remeasurement delivery contract? To my mind, there's little reason to ever do that, other than some contractors might like the simplicity of only having one type of agreement to administer with all of their suppliers. So within those types of contracts, there are a few different standard forms that you're likely to come across, which will be most often you're going to see a JCT subcontract of some description or an NEC subcontract of some type. And from time to time, contractors will roll out their own sort of bespoke terms and conditions. And what you're 
tend to find is that they will operate in a similar fashion to a JCT agreement. Most contractors out there are most at home with the JCT conditions and their own conditions sort of align themselves with that and possibly tilt the scales a little bit further in their favour under a standard set of conditions. So those are some of the basic and standard arrangements that you're going to see. And that covers the typical conditions you're going to operate under. And the reality is that much of those agreements all operate in the same way. There's different terminology around them all. So what is known as a variation or a change under the JCT set of contracts comes under the heading of a compensation event under the NEC set of contracts. We will do another episode delving into all of those types of contracts in more detail. What I want to talk to you about today is when you've received that 300 odd page document, you're going to open that and regardless of the terms that you're being appointed under, what you're going to find is going to follow a pretty typical recipe that you'll see whatever contractor you're going to work for. So you're going to have the head agreement. This is your subcontract, so your JCT NEC agreement. You're probably going to have a pre-start meeting and a record of that meeting. Then you're going to see things like policy documents, so it might be health and safety, it might be environmental awareness or requirements. You're going to see reference back to the main contract. Some contractors will stick in here absolutely everything that is part of the main contract and may potentially try and trip you up with some of that, suggesting that you've seen and read through all of their contract documents and that they're part of the subcontract. If they're going to try and do that, you need to call them out on it. And you need to ask the question, what out of the main contract do you want me to comply with? Let them come back to you with that. And then you're going to see some other documents that are what I call the Holy Trinity. And these are documents that define the price, the program, and the scope. And this is what you really need to review and make sure is correct. Because as much as the subcontract itself can be there to cause issues or trip you up at times, what it's really there for is to control certain things, comply with the Construction Act, and give a bit of framework around what is a change, how you deal with it, how you get paid for it, how you go about agreeing a final price when it's all said and done. The real thing, the nuts and bolts that you really have to get to grips with and feel that you're comfortable, you know and you understand and you're confident you can deliver is the scope. So we're talking design, we're talking specification, we're talking a scope of works. The program, how long have you got to deliver that design, that scope? And the price, how much are you getting paid for it? So let's start with the scope. So you want to pick up your quote and you want to pick up your inquiry document and you want to make sure that the scope that you priced in the inquiry document 
is the same scope that is in the order. No extra lines, no amendments, save for those amendments that might have been made to align the original inquiry scope with any changes that were made by your quotation. You really want to review this line by line and make sure it's right. Because once you've signed on the dotted line and the black and white says you're going to deliver X, you have to deliver X. There's no delivering X minus one and expecting to get the same price for it or trying to charge a change for adding that one back in. So when you pick up your scope and it says you'll provide access and you know you've excluded access or you will provide builder's work for services or diamond drilling say and you know you've excluded it you need to call it out you need to either red pen it and send it back to your contractor with notes or you need to drop them an email write them a letter and say i can't sign this because it doesn't reflect what's been agreed don't get hoodwinked into i can't put your payment on until you've signed it so you sign and return the order without checking. This is a priority for you to check and protect yourself and check, am I now being contracted to provide what I quoted to provide? You want to pay attention to things that you know you've excluded and things that you know you've qualified out. Sometimes the contractor might not have read those exclusions or they might have thought they were just a standard addition to your quote and not pay too much attention to them. So this is your last opportunity to really get it right. The next thing you want to check is design. In terms of the Holy Trinity, this is still part of the scope. But what you want to do here is check that the designs that you had when you priced the job at inquiry stage, tender stage, are the same drawings and design that you've received and are referred to in your contract. There's no good ignoring it. Much the same as we did much the same as we said about the scope. Once you've signed on the dotted line, you've agreed. You've agreed that you're providing whatever's on those drawings for the price that you've submitted. So now is your chance to make sure it's right. So compare the revisions. Are the revisions the same? If they're not the same, flag it up. Write on the subcontract, cross out the revision, write in the revision number that you had. Or again, write a letter or an email back to your contractor and flag up. This is changed. This isn't what I priced. I can't sign the agreement. Now you might be sat there thinking, I don't want to cause a problem. I want to just deliver the job get paid my money and move on to the next bit of work. And that's fine. But think about what's fair. If down the line, you're not getting on with your contractor, they're flagging up items of specification that you haven't seen before, details on drawings that you didn't know were there because you've had a different revision and they're expecting you to foot the bill for something that you know you haven't priced. Now is your time to shout up and prevent that from happening. And what you'll see is, if you flag these things up, most contractors who have a QS that procures the work on site, send out their own inquiries, form their own contracts for work, will be a little bit embarrassed 
that they've been caught out and they'll be all the keener to resolve the issue quickly with minimal fuss and you can both move on and get the job built. Next thing is the spec. So depending on what you're providing, what you're being contracted to do, the spec will be quite a big or quite a small document, as I say, specific to the trade that you're supplying to the contract. Key thing to check. If there's a bill of quantities or there's a price, is what's on the specification the same thing that's on the price document? Is the spec the same thing that you priced at tender stage? And critically as well, if you did any value engineering, you proposed alternative products, you proposed a different method, and there's no note in there to say that equal or approved products are allowed, then flag it up. Because you don't want to be on the hook for providing something vastly more expensive for a cheaper price. And as I said previously, if there is a discrepancy and both you and the contractor can look each other in the eyes and understand that you're right on something, this problem will go away before it becomes a problem down the line, simply by flagging it up and talking about it. Now there are a couple of other things to think about in terms of scope and those were little bits that we mentioned earlier. So in terms of safety policies and environmental policies and those kind of documents, some of those may impact your scope of works. What's a for instance for this? So working at height, your contractor might have a requirement and some of these come from weird places. An accident might have happened and a piece of learning that, or an action that came out of the investigation would be to implement a policy to prevent the similar sort of action from happening again. And that can result in policies that become all the more restrictive and all the more expensive to comply with. And in some senses that can become a problem to the contractor over time. But back to the example. So working at height, stupid example, there may be a requirement in there for tools to be tethered to your operative with a particular kind of clip, inertia reel, I don't know, some kind of tether. Was that flagged up to you when you priced the job? Have you included for it? Is it a change? I think you're now getting the picture of what you need to do. Flag it up. Talk about it. Call it out when you send the contract back. Now we'll move on to program. I've seen some pretty weird things happen with programs in subcontracts. And a lot of those things are there to try and protect the contractor. So you might see things such as sections of work, which are defined by a start and a finish point, and there's no actual date in there. It might refer you back to a, some date on a notice that hasn't been issued yet. I think this is a little bit unfair. Being right about these things, you've priced to complete the work, you've priced based on it taking so long to do. Now there might be more than one section of work on a job, and in a lot of instances there will be more than one section, and some of those sections will be concurrent with each other, very likely 
concurrent with each other. If the first section starts on time, but then the second section is delayed, a contractor who's got this sort of sectional arrangement and issues a notice for each section is trying to do away with your entitlement to any prolongation or any extra cost for that delay in between the first section starting and the second section starting. So you want to clarify this and you want to say that you have priced to complete the works within a given period. And what you want to see when you get your subcontract and you delve into where your program is, is that the period that you price to be on site is reflected in the order. Seems only fair, right? Ideally, you want to see a program of works and you want to see the interfaces between your work and the other trades on site. Some of those interfaces might point to things that may trip you up, may trip up the contractor in the fullness of time as the job unfolds. But the long and the short of the program aspect is you want to know that the program that you've priced to complete the work in is reflected in the subcontract. And if it isn't, call it out. And the last element of the holy trinity of contracts, the price. So your price might appear in various different forms. It might be a lump sum. It might be a lump sum with a particular build-up given. It might be remeasurable. But item number one that you want to see is, given the scope matches, the program matches, you want to see that your price matches too. But again, all three of these things should speak to each other. So if you've got preliminaries priced, so site management, accommodation, that kind of thing, the period of time that you've got in the program to complete the works needs to relate back to the preliminaries price. The items that you've priced on the drawings, the spec, they need to relate back to the bill items or the price items that you've got in your subcontract sum analysis. Again, it's no good if you've priced for alternatives, you get a bill of quantities that refer back to the original spec, particularly if you've got the cheaper rates for some value engineered product alongside a description of something more expensive. Because if you sign an agreement that says you're going to provide a gold tap and you know full well that you've priced a brass tap and that price that you've got in there is for the brass tap, guess what? You're on the hook for providing gold for the price of brass. Not a happy place to be. And you know what I'm going to say to this. If there's a discrepancy, call it out. There's a couple of other points around price. So... The nature of the price needs to reflect what you've quoted. So if you've priced on a remeasurement basis, you want to check that the contract shows a remeasurement basis. Straightforward stuff, but don't let it trip you up. If you've priced a lump sum, you want to make sure that the quantities are fair. And I'm saying that from a point of you don't want to take the risk on somebody else's quantities without first at least doing some kind of arbitrary checks to make sure that they're reflective of the work. So in simple terms, if you've priced it yourself and you're confident that your quants are right and you fix the price, then happy days. 
if somebody else is fixing you to their own quantities, check it before you sign the document. Check it before you're on the hook. Because again, this is your last opportunity to get it right. And this goes to one final principle that you should always strive to do, is get it right before you get to site. And that covers the holy trinity of subcontracts. Hopefully that gives you the confidence to pick up the documents, read through it, know what you're looking at. And I can't stress this enough. If something doesn't look right, shout up, say a bit, at the very least have a conversation. Because too late, too late will be the cry when the man with the bargains has passed you by. And trust me, it's a lot, lot easier to have the argument now than it is once you've put your name on that dotted line and you've effectively committed. So I really encourage you to do these simple checks, protect yourself and save yourself from disputes down the line. So I hope you've learned something useful from today's episode. I've kept this at a reasonably high level and we will delve into some of the nuances around price, program, contract in further detail in upcoming episodes. If you want to give me your feedback on today's show, talk to me about future shows and ideas that you would like to be covered, topics, guests, and so on, please do connect with me on your favorite socials. I'm at qs.zone. Thanks again for tuning in. If you like what you've heard and you want to learn more, please find us at www.qs.zone where you can subscribe to our training and support system for like-minded subcontractors. Thanks again. I've been Jacob Austin and you've been awesome.